I think the big thing is going up and asking the question, which is, what can I do to improve my book sales on your site or on this platform? Welcome back to The Author Biz, where we gather around this digital campfire each week to talk about the non-craft parts of your author business. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and we are, believe it or not, at episode number 53. For some reason or other, episode 50 didn't really strike me, uh, but episode 53, for some bizarre reason, strikes me as a lot of episodes. I think you'll be glad you're here this week. You see, today's guest is Cheryl Bradshaw. Cheryl Indy published her first book, Black Diamond Death, which was the first in her best-selling Sloan Monroe mystery series a little over four years ago. Today, Cheryl is a USA Today and a New York Times best-selling author who's still an indie. And as you'll hear in this interview, she's got her fingers firmly on the pulse of what's working in the book-selling business right now. She's developed personal relationships with, get this, actual human beings at the major digital distribution outlets like Kobo, iBooks. She knows people at Amazon, and she also has personal relationships with the people at BookBub. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about book marketing, not just what's working for Cheryl with BookBub and Facebook advertising, But we're also going to talk uh, about how she and her assistant track the results for her various campaigns. Then, I'm sure this is not going to surprise you, I ask her how important her email newsletter is to her business. And that actually leads to a confession that I think is kind of interesting. Now, before we get started, a quick warning. Cheryl lives in Wyoming in one of those places where... Telephone connections are not what they are in other parts of the country. So there are some glitchy areas. It's not the same audio quality that I usually strive for in this show, but the information is so good, I hope you will bear with us. As always, the show notes will be at theauthorbiz.com. And if you stop by there to check out the show notes, please subscribe to the email list if you're not already there. I'm also putting together an email series right now on the five essential elements of an effective author website that's not tied into the main list yet. You can learn more about that list and subscribe at theauthorbiz.com slash author website. Now, let's bring in this week's guest and talk book marketing. Cheryl Bradshaw, welcome to The Author Biz. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's get right into this. What's one thing that you do that you feel like has been one of the biggest contributors to your success or to the success of your author business? I would say it's the connections that I have made, and that is twofold. It's partially the connections I've made with authors, like forming groups where you work together to kind of help cross promote and things of that nature. And then other the other side of that is actually meeting people from various companies like iBooks and Kobo, Amazon, and, and getting, you know, some insight on how they can help me out. I mean, when you make a personal connection, especially when you meet face-to-face, if you're at a convention, there's really nothing, in my opinion, as good as that. That's an interesting answer. Um, it 
And, and there aren't a lot of people that have those personal connections with people in Amazon and iBooks and those places. So uh, how, how has that helped? Well, I, I would I would say uh, Kobo would be a good example for me to use. Uh, I, I sat down with someone at Kobo a couple of months ago when I was in New York for a speaking at a convention on a panel for BookBub, and they he showed me a spreadsheet of how I've done since I started with Kobo to now. Talked to me about like what we could do to kind of help facilitate book sales in the future, build and grow on Kobo, which is great because I think a lot of authors tend to think Amazon, 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 and that's great. But I think you also don't want to ostracize all of your other readers that are on other platforms. And so for me this year, in the last year, it's been a big goal for me to just really see what I can do by meeting, you know, some reps on other platforms and seeing what I can do to kind of bring in readers over there. You offer your books on every possible platform, and some people don't do that. Why did you decide that that's the way you wanted to run your business? At my first couple years, I was in KDT Select, and I, and I have to say they did a lot for me, and I loved it, and I appreciate everything, you know, how I grew from that. But when things started changing with their algorithms, that was a concern for me because I was doing all, I had all these tactics I was using to kind of keep my books, you know, up in the top 100 all the time. And when their algorithms changed and they changed the spectrum of the program, it just changed, that whole dynamic for me went away. And that coupled with the emails that I was starting to get from readers saying, you know, I wish I could read you, but you're not on Barnes & Noble. You're not on Kobo. You're not on iBooks. You're not on Google Google Play. I started getting more and more emails like that. Like, how come I can't find your books? And my assistant was saying, this is happening a lot. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to take my stuff out of KDP Select, and I'm going to see what I can do to build on the other side. Neil was a very slow build, but I'm finally mm -hmm. getting somewhere. <laughs> and, and kind of walk us through the slow build process, because that, that's it's it's a little bit too general. So I, I'm envisioning like this slow upward trend, like maybe it's flat for a while and then it starts to go up. Is it is it like that, or were there some spikes? Yeah, you know, it, it is slow and, and grows over time, because what it's like is it's like starting all over again from scratch. So in the, in the couple of years that I had been exclusive with Amazon, I had grown a lot over there, but, n but not a lot of other readers knew me that weren't on Amazon, weren't buying their books from Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's literally like starting all over again and reintroducing yourself to most readers on that particular platform who've never heard of you. Like, Kobo does really well in Canada, and I would say before I started selling a decent amount on Kobo, they hadn't really heard of me over there. And now I do really well in Canada, and Kobo has a lot to do with that. When you break down the revenue from all of the different platforms that you use, we'll just assume that Amazon's in first place. What's in second place? 
Second place is a tie between iBooks and Kobo. It really depends on the month. Uh-huh. You know, if you asked me last month, I would have said Kobo hands down because I, the last several months as a whole have been really consistent and good for me. But then, oh, I have a new book release this month, and iBooks has done a tremendous amount for me in the way of showcasing that. They, they created a banner for me. I've got my own little, it's like a little thing you can click on that has my book and my name, and it's right on the main page. It's on the main page. If you click on Mysteries and Thrillers, it's there. And in Top Selling Books, they have my book in there. And so that kind of flip-flopped for this month, and now this month is a great month on iBooks. So, you know, sometimes they're kind of neck and neck. It just depends on what the rep is doing for me in that particular month. Kobo runs consistent sales every month, which usually my books are a part of. And you have to apply and so forth, and they can accept it, or, you know, they take only so many. Mm-hmm. And whenever I'm accepted to anything like that, um, it, it ends up being a better month than on iBooks. But then iBooks, like I said, can do what they did for me this month, and it can just, like, skyrocket. Actually, all my book sales, I'm noticing now a trickle-down effect of people started off buying this standalone that I just put out, mm-hmm. and now I'm seeing sales on my other books because of, the sales made on the standalone new release. Okay, and and we'll talk about the book specifically in a little while. The standalone you're, you're talking about is Eye for Revenge, and that sort of ap- follows... A, you've had a great deal of success with... Uh, the Sloan Monroe series, and that's how I came to know you is, is in reading that. And I want to get into that whole series versus standalone thing, but I want to dig just a little bit deeper into Kobo and iBooks. You mentioned the personal relationship. Is that something that you got from being at conferences and meeting uh, the reps, or is that something that you pursued outside of that through some other channel? It's both from... Going to a conference and, well, actually, it's, it's more, I was just thinking of the last couple of things I had done. I had an iBooks dinner that I went to at the beginning of this year that I was invited to. And then I had, um, I had already been talking to some people at Kobo through email. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that one of the reps was going to be in New York at the same, on the same day that I was doing a panel, and so we just kind of emailed back and forth and scheduled something that way. So they were already people that I knew of who were already doing things for me, but the difference between what they were doing for me and then when we met in person and had one-on-one is a huge difference because then they can cater specific things to you, like, why don't we do this? Let's try this. Kobo said, for example, do you have your Sloan Monroe series uh, boxed up one through six yet anywhere. And I said, no, not yet. It's something I've thought about, but I just haven't done it yet. And they said, what's one exclusive on Kobo at a higher price? Why not? You don't have it out anyway. Let's try it. They're, they're, they're really great with, let's try this. Let's try that. Let's see. This doesn't work. So now let's try this. And I love that. It's really great. I did notice from your website, I, I noticed the six-book set of the Sloan series, and I didn't see it anywhere but Kobo. So that's 
that now I now I understand that. That's that's kind of yeah. cool. Now, how would how would you advise other people, other authors that that aren't in your position right now, uh, and and don't have those relationships? How would you advise them to start the process of developing them? Okay, so for example, when I I had a preset meeting one on one with Kobo, as I just stated, uh, when I was in New York. But when I arrived for the meeting at the BEA conference, honestly, like, they're sitting there in a booth just hanging out, waiting to talk to anybody that wants to come up. Mm -hmm. And so what I see, and anyone could have went up and talked to them or any of the other vendors that were there that particular day. So I think the big thing is going up and asking the question, which is, what can I do to improve my book sales on your site or on this platform or what would you recommend? Like, this, this is what I'm writing. This is what I do. This is these are my sales. Uh, what can I do to, to get better and be better and do better and, and you know, some things of that nature? I mean, anyone could have walked up and asked that. Because that, they, they usually, at most of the bigger conferences, they're all sitting there in a booth and, and utilize that. I would say to readers or to writers, I would say, utilize the fact that they're, that they're sitting there at a table waiting to just talk to you. Everybody has been really great that I've met and worked with, and you want to pick their brain, and, and you can do that without any problem at all. For having followed your work over a, a period of years and, and having spoken to you one, one other time, I get a sense that this, what can I do to improve my book sales question that you ask to Kobo is a question that you ask yourself on a fairly regular basis. Is that a true statement? Yes, that statement would be true that I pretty much uh, think about that every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's let's go to let's let's talk about the, the Sloan series and the uh, you've written some standalones while you've been writing the Sloan series. Uh, you have another series as well and then you just released Eye for Revenge, which I just started reading last night and it's fantastic by the way. Congratulations on that. I normally when an author writes a standalone and I really like the series. I want to punish them by not <laughs> buying the standalone right away. <laughs> so I waited. What's the difference for you in terms of marketing a standalone versus marketing the next Sloan book, for example? I honestly market the same way no matter what it is, as long as it's a novel. For a shorter work, a novella or something of that nature, uh, it's... Um, not so heavy because I, I I I can put those out you know every other month if I wanted to and so mm -hmm. I really want to focus hard on this is what's coming next and get people's minds geared toward it but it is the same exact way now the only thing that I would say that's different is my Sloan Monroe series and now also my Addison Lockhart series which is kind of like a little bit they're a little shorter they're like long novellas but you know they're starting you know that one even is starting to get a fan base but especially the Sloan Monroe series that's how I grew my brand and kind of became known as an author is from that series that's what I how I started and that's what most of my readers know me from so it's I have a built-in fan base for that series so I would say it's how to answer that question is something differently. It's it's trying to pull in the built-in fan base that I already have for Sloan Monroe 
in, and, and hoping that they will buy, get to the point. I would, what I like to do is have them get to the point where they'll buy anything I write because they like my style of writing. Mm-hmm. And that is starting to happen. I mean, when you get somebody that can read like a, you know, a ghost mystery, and it's still, everything that I write is murder mystery oriented. But uh, honestly, I have people that they'll write, they'll read anything. They'll read the ghost mystery, they'll read a romantic suspense, they'll read mysteries, they'll read thriller, because they like my style of writing, and that's what I'm trying to accomplish. And it's the Addison Lockhart series that's the paranormal series. I mean, Sloan's kind of a traditional P.I., series. Um, you do romantic suspense. I guess there's some romantic suspense in Sloan, but uh, <laughs> her romance is, is, is maybe not what she would like it to be. Yeah, you know, for traditional mystery and the way that I grew up studying the, that genre, and it's so much has changed over the last few years with indies just kind of writing off the cuff and mm-hmm. doing whatever they want to a degree, but I'm still very traditional in that there are a set of rules, hypothetically, you know, and so it's kind of like you can bring the romance into the book and you can even take it to the bedroom and then we move on to the next day. You know, so it's like, the, you know, it's, I, I keep it really light on romance and more focused on the mystery because that's, that's what it is. Um, and, and so I try to keep it focused on solving the murder rather than... I like to have a the relationship dynamic, but I just don't like it to get too involved. Now, you mentioned the set of rules, and I think everyone listening understands what you're talking about with the set of rules for any particular genre. But I'm sure you've had dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations with authors who are telling you about this great new genre-bending book that they're writing where they're combining all of these things. What do you say when, uh, when someone shares that or, or ask you about that? I'm completely supportive as long as it works. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it really doesn't. And when it doesn't, then I might say to that author friend, well, uh, I have a book that you might like to read that might help you with, like, the structure of how a normal mystery is written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might want to give that a try. You know, I'm, I am all for pushing boundaries and... And, and trying new things within reason. That's honestly why I started writing uh, The Paranormal Suspense. I really am into the whole ghost aspect, but there's so much more freedom there for me. I wanted to keep the Sloan series traditional, what a traditional mystery was, based on, you know, just how I, what I used to read growing up, Agatha Christie, Robert B. Parker, you know, some of my favorites, and in, in that vein. But then when I want to kind of branch out, I don't, I, I will tend to cross over into a, a genre that's more understanding of really you can write anything you want and it has to be plausible because it's hypothetical, like ghosts, you know, mm-hmm. no one can tell you that that can or can't happen because <laughs> it's fantasy, really. <laughs> so I don't know. It's fun. It's fun. And it's fun doing both. You know, it's fun to like push those boundaries and it's not, but I've seen some people write some stuff that it's way too many. It's way too many lines that are crossed, and I find that sometimes when that happens, not always, but sometimes that'll be reflected in the in the reviews that book gets, and and you will see readers show a distaste for the fact that I thought this was a mystery, not a romance. I thought this was a mystery 
um, not of this or that. And, and, and you see that in the reviews. And I think it's all about how your readers respond. If they think, wow, this is really new and interesting and refreshing and I could still get on board with it, then more power to you. You mentioned that if someone came to you with uh, an idea like that for a book and it, it wasn't successful, that you might point them in the direction of a a book. Were, were you talking about a specific book on genre structure? Yeah, I mean, and there's a whole bunch that I would recommend, but, you know, maybe something like Goldstein uh, on writing or... Um, there's a whole bunch in, in the mystery genre. One, one that I think that comes to mind is Don't Murder Your Mystery. And that, that, that is exactly what we are talking about right now when we talk about people that like take the mystery and go, now I want to do, put this weird spin on it. And they, and in their mind, I know that they think it's going to sell really well and do really well, but we're still, I think, the mystery fan base and the thriller fan base as well is, I find my demographic is a little bit on the older side than something like romance. Mm -hmm. You know, I would even, I would say, I have, I have a large spread as far as like from 25, like 85, whatever. But I would say 40 and up is who I cater to, even 50 and up Mm -hmm. would be uh, when I break down my demographic and kind of look at things like that. And they are all used to reading and still really enjoy that traditional mystery feel. Where do you get these demographics? Where do you get this information? Uh, Facebook is really helpful, but I can break down things from my blog okay. and, and, and things like that. But, and also on my website, I can see, I can, I can go in and look at the statistics. But for me, Facebook is number one as far as that. And it's not just so much my author page, it's Facebook ads. You know, when I when I will create an ad and I leave it pretty open as far as men and women, not really uh, age-specific, and I put the ad out there, I get a lot of great feedback on what age and what, um, you know, like male or female or what age demographic is giving me the most clicks. On, on the ads I'm putting up. How effective, I want to get into BookBub a little bit later, but how effective are Facebook ads for you right now? They're very effective, but they, they're, they're equally as frustrating as they are effective. <laughs> because, I mean, I'm not going to, it's so, it's very time-consuming, I think, if you really are going to get serious about trying to make it work, uh, if an author is trying to really make it work for themselves. But it's worth it, and I... I, you know, I'm, I tend to be kind of on the OCD side, and so for me, I have I have a spreadsheet that has, in alphabetical order, every single mystery and thriller author that has a Facebook following. Mm-hmm. How many people do they have? Because if you especially take people that are that are like um, the way that you write, then that's who you want to target at first. I'm not saying mention them in your ad because I have different mixed feelings about people when they do that, but I'm saying more like targeting an audience that would read the kind of books that you already are writing. And and so, for me, those ads can be a huge success. It's just that different months make them do better or worse, you know, different, you know, especially summer is kind of touch and go, people are gone, you know, and 
I don't know. So it's hard for me when I'm trying to create ads and say, okay, this one works, this one doesn't, because in two months that same app might work, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And and how hard was it for you early on to identify similar writing styles, maybe? Because, I mean, we all we all want to think that if you like Lee Child, you'll love our book. Uh, but if you do that, you're not doing yourself uh, much of a service, especially if you're spending money on ads. Uh, how did you go about figuring out the right author groups to go after? You know, in the beginning, when I wrote my first couple of books, I, I th- and I think a lot of authors, I would even dare say maybe most authors, they know who their own favorite authors are and who they read consistently because mm-hmm. every writer basically is a reader, you know. And so I feel like my first couple of books I leaned heavily on what I already knew, and what we know is, you know, kind of a collection of what we've read. And so I, I had, I noticed that some of my reviews in the in the early days would say, "Oh, this reminds me of Robert B. Parker." Well, of course it does. I've read every single one of his books, <laughs> you know. Like, and I wasn't trying to write like him, but like I, you know, I can I can quote many of the lines from his books because I've read some of them more than once. But as I grew as an author, I really got out of that. Like, I don't think I found my voice until, you know, book three, book four. Then I really started. And actually, the writing changed a little bit. It was similar as far as my personality in the book. You know, it still is the same. But I think the it just got tightened up, and now I don't see comparisons given to me too, too much anymore. And so as far as me, if I'm going to do a Facebook ad and I'm going to target a specific author and trying to figure out who works for me, I've had a few surprises because there are some, some people that I have tried that I never thought would do really well because I didn't think they were like my writing style, and then... I actually find that I'm doing pretty good, you know, by, by trying them out. So I started out trying people that I thought were really more of my demographic. Mary Higgins, Clark, um, Sue Grafton, Robert B. Parker, mm-hmm. you know, people like, people like that. And then I thought, you know, I think I'm just going to try everybody. And so I kind of like over the over the last several months just started, you know, just kind of went through the list and given different people a try. And I found that people that I haven't ever really read before, I'm really starting to um, do really well with their demographic. How do you identify which ads are successful? What what makes an ad successful in terms of is is it clicks? Is it uh, people going to your website? Is it somehow you're tracking book sales? What makes an ad successful for you? The things I look at are cost per click, which doesn't really bother me if it's a little bit higher and I'm getting sales off of it. So I don't really care if if one person's like a 15 cent cost per click and another person's a 35 cent cost per click, if I'm getting more purchases at that 35 cents, then I don't care. It's still doing its job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then another thing is, you know, Facebook ads keep kind of evolving and they keep giving us more tools to make them better and better. Like now we have like the relevant score. So once you've tested somebody out for maybe, I'm going to say two or three days, they give you a relevant score out of 10, you mm-hmm. know, from zero to 10. And the closer you get to a 10, 
it basically Facebook is saying to you, you know, if you get like an 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, they consider that you are doing better than most ads that are targeted, you know, that are similar to yours. So I look at things like relevance score. I definitely look at the sales score because if I have, if I have an ad that's um, 15 cents cost per click, but I don't hardly see any sales on it, then yeah, it's getting clicks, but that, then that, there's a breakdown. There's a click, but there's not a sale. So then I got to go back and figure out, okay, so that's, maybe a great cost per click, but I still need to tweak this. And how are you tracking the actual sales that come from these ads? It's hard because it's actually not okay to use your, you know, at first I think we were all like, yeah, we're going to use our Amazon affiliate code and like our different affiliate codes for Uh the different sites, but you're actually not legally allowed to use your affiliate code on Facebook ads, and they've been cracking down on that the last couple of months. So you can get in big trouble for that. Mm-hmm. So the only thing you can really do, I, I actually would recommend if a new, if, if an author is going to try Facebook ads and they've never done it, take one of your books that you know how much it sells a day. It sells three copies a day, five a day, ten a day. Mm-hmm. Do an ad on that book. So a book that you know, you already know the average. And then if that ten turns into twenty, per day, then you know that ad is working on top of the other tools that Facebook gives you. What it comes down at the end of the day is, am I seeing more sales on this book? And, and you right. want to pick a book that's not already like you're running an ad on or a book book on or anything like that, because there's no way for you to know if that book is also involved in something else. You want to pick something that's just kind of hanging out that is just kind of slowed down to maybe a certain number of day that you, you know how much you're selling. And then test that one out. Okay. It seems clear in talking to you, and I'm sure listeners are getting this same sense, that you're pretty hardcore uh, when it comes to (laughs) paying attention to these numbers, being willing to experiment, and investing the time in doing this. Yet you're still... You still have a fairly regular publishing schedule, and you've got kids. How are you? How do you organize your time to get it all done? What's 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 a typical day look like for you? Right now, it's not typical because it's summer, and I and everything's been crazy. Vacations and and conventions and things like mm-hmm. that, which will be slowing down. But normally during the school season, that's when I do most of my writing. I have haven't written at the same pace that I write during school, you know, over the summer, this summer. And actually I start to get kind of go, oh my gosh, I've been playing too much. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but I would say a typical schedule for me is um, I always get up in the morning and take care of the, the business side of things as far as um, looking at my Facebook ads in the morning, looking at my sales, uh, responding to fan mail. There's a routine that I, that I will go through even before I'm, step a toe out of bed. I will just, you know, like kind of sit and do all those things, kind of try to give myself an average amount of time for that. Then I get ready for the day. Then I sit down and I try to do from about, if I can, maybe from about 11 to 4 is is focused on writing or research for the book or book, whatever I'm working on at that time, whether that's I need to do some research one day for the chapter I'm on or actually just writing straight that day. You know, if I could get even four hours in, I'm extremely happy. That sounds like a lot of writing time, if, if, you, can actually, if you can actually spend that time writing. Yeah, it sounds like it, and right now it's 
I'm happy if I can get an hour or two a day. (laughs) But when school is back in, I know that that's when I put out more books than over the summer. It's those nine months are kind of like the the time that I actually set aside for writing. And then I sort of relax a little bit in the summer to a degree. (laughs) So, you know, that's important. It's important to me to just, to just really, I have to really focus. And truly, I know everybody already knows this, but I have to check Facebook in the morning and then get off, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is easier said than done. And how do you do that? How do you uh, how do you stop yourself from going back? In, and it, do you do you limit yourself until a certain period of time, or what? What's the process for you? Because we all have such trouble with it. You may have found the secret, and I'd like you to share it with us. I, I don't think I have, <laughs> but I'm I. I allow Facebook notifications to come to my phone, first of all. And a lot of authors do. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's just even if you're like, I'm not going to go on Facebook, you know, I'm going to stay off of it. First thing that I do after I've done Facebook and the whole that whole thing in the morning is I I just shut down the window. And the only thing I really keep open would be, you know, something that I'm researching. And sometimes I'll even shut off like the internet side, and if I need to research something, I'll do it on my phone, just so I'm not like getting back on. Oh, well, well why I'm on the internet, I'm going to go and check Facebook for a second. You know, like so. <laughs> I mean, it's like all about mind over matter. I mean, you know. But then I don't. I it, I don't want to get when I'm writing. I do not want to get those notifications on my phone. And sometimes I I get involved in, like, group messages for, like, box sets I'm doing with different authors. Mm -hmm. And I want to read everything that's going back and forth, but sometimes it's almost all the time every day. And so I will go in and just turn off the notifications for one hour, four hours, whatever I need. And then I'll go back in later or, you know, when I can and read everything. But it's like you got to keep your head you know, in the game. When I'm writing, anything shifts my focus, and so I try to really shut everything down. Okay. Uh, earlier in the interview, you mentioned an assistant. What what kind of things do you outsource to your assistant? She does everything from helping me manage my street team to my newsletter to scheduling my ads. You know, I schedule my book club ad because I'm really specific with that. Uh, and I have some connections over there, and so I usually want to schedule it a specific way. But as far as, like, the secondary ads after the book up for that book that I'm going to advertise that month, she schedules all of that out for me. I mean, she she's a virtual assistant, but honestly, she'll do anything. If I'm like, <laughs> I need you to look up airfare for me for, mm-hmm. you know, this conference is coming up or give me an idea or this or that, she'll do that. I mean, just, just anything or everything. I, you know, I have her create spreadsheets for me and create lists for me. She, she also keeps track of nominations. So, you know, if, you know, a nomination is coming up for like the McCavity or different kinds of, of awards that I know are in my genre that I can apply for every year. Um, she keeps me on track so I don't miss the deadline. We don't miss the deadlines for submission. So the, it's just, you know, it's unlimited. It, it starts out kind of like you're, you're, you're thinking, I know I need an assistant. I don't really know what all I'd have her do because yes. you don't, you know, I think most writers, like, we tend to micromanage our stuff, and mm-hmm. I think that's a mindset that we have. And But when you get somebody that you really trust, and it's almost like you kind of work together as one, and it's been fantastic. How long have you been with this particular assistant? I've gone through, well, I started out with 
my, one of my best friends being my assistant. But, you know, it's kind of when you have family sometimes, they, <laughs> they're like, oh, today I wish I could apply for those ads for you, but I actually got to do this. And I'm thinking some things are on, like, a time schedule. <laughs> so the, the girl that works with me now has been doing things for me for a few years now. And it kind of worked into the virtual assistant position. She was. She started off doing just little things for me here and there and other things, mm-hmm. and then it worked into being the only person I use as a virtual assistant. You mentioned that it was weird in the beginning. How long did it take to get over the weirdness of it and, and to begin actually seeing some value from it, other than just like, well, I, I don't want to do this, so you know, can you do this? When, when did you start seeing some actual value? I saw value immediately because it's it's like when you realize what that two hours you would have spent or hours you hour you would have spent doing something else frees you up and can even cut your time that you're actually sitting there. You know, I when I can get more writing done in a shorter amount of time because I'm outsourcing all this side stuff. It, it was really easy for me to see. I think the. The hard thing for me was letting go of certain things. Like, we, I just started letting go of the newsletter. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, I don't need to actually sit down and write this whole thing myself. I can give her my portion, which is always, like, the top part of it. I always will talk about my month and different things. And then have her kind of fill in the rest. It's like, I think that what's hard for me is, is just to let it go. <laughs> you know, like, let mm-hmm. it go and let somebody else do it, even though I trust her completely. How, you mentioned the newsletter, how important is the newsletter and the mailing list, your mailing list, uh, to your author business in general? The mailing list is one of the most important things. Uh, you know, mailing list and a newsletter is one of the most important things an author can have. And, uh, and a lot of a lot of writers, I've heard a lot of people say things like, "Well, yeah, because Facebook could decide to do this or that or whatever tomorrow." And you'll lose all of your people that are following you on Facebook, but you always have them if you're on your newsletter. And that's true. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't see Facebook, like, imploding or anything anytime soon. And it's not like I can go on my author page on Facebook and see, yeah, I have, you know, I've grown a lot over the last year especially, but you don't get their emails. You know, you just kind of, they're on your page, and now they're not really seeing your page unless you boost the ad. Mm-hmm. So that's where a newsletter comes in, and it's very direct. And I think what's hard, frustrating even with that is that, is that it's so hard to get a decent open rate. Like I'd say my open rate right now is probably about 40%, which most authors That's pretty consider good. to be pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, but, uh, but it's hard. I, I, for me, I, and I, and I want to admit this if it helps other authors, especially, I didn't realize the value of a mailing list for a long time. I focused on other things when I could have been building it up from the beginning, and mm-hmm. that is probably my biggest regret. And so the last year especially, I have worked really hard to kind of just take all those people that email me and, and correspond with me or go on my Facebook page and just say, oh, you know what? I can tell you, you know, when the next book comes out, you sign up for my newsletter. You know, we, we always talk about it in the newsletter, and we run exclusive giveaways in the newsletter that you'll never see anywhere else except for on the newsletter. 
And so that's really helped a lot. And I just only wish I would have done that earlier. I can't tell you the number of people that I've spoken to who have said exactly that thing. I wish I had started it sooner. Mm-hmm. And I also can't tell you the number of people that I talk to who say, well, I just don't have time right now, and it feels intrusive to send an email out, and I've got Facebook, and I've got Twitter, and I, yeah, I hear you, but I'm not going to do it. And they don't say I'm not going to do it, but they don't do it, and it frustrates mm-hmm. the heck out of me because it is so important. It is, and it's become really much more important this year because, like I mentioned before, Facebook is not showing the post like they did a year ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had kind of a strategy where I could, like, work around that that was working for me for a while, but then that stopped working, too, unless I boosted every single ad that I posted. And, yeah, I still post on my page, you know, maybe every day or whatever, but it's, they're not getting seen. When you have, you know, a, people following you on Facebook when you've got 5,000 or 10,000 or what have you, and you post, a, you, you create a post, and it only gets shown to, like, maybe 300 people out of that five or 10,000. Mm-hmm. And you think about if, you, if you've got a newsletter that has that same 5,000 and with a 40% open rate, then it's being looked at. And then I can also, I also measure the clicks, like not only how much did it get open, but how many clicks did I get from putting my new book on there. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is the most important thing an author can do right now, I think. Okay. Well, thank you for that, and and thank you for making it so incredibly clear. Uh, one of the things that you do particularly well, you've mentioned it a couple times, um, and and you you mentioned that you met with the book bug pe- book bub people in in New York when you were there. Uh, but you're you seem to be a very effective user of book bub. Can you sort of share your book bub strategy with us? My yes. First, I would say I adore BookBub. <laughs> I've had a, I've had a chance to when I was in New York. I was invited to a um, kind of like a little cocktail evening, and I got to meet most of the people who run things over there. And, and I asked a lot of questions. But I've been I've been using BookBub since the onset, since they started. And I, at first, I, I was kind of a, also a slow build there because as they became more and more expensive, I had to decide, like, where am I going to put my money? You know, like, where, you know, am I going to, like, spend a lot of it, the bulk on a bookbub ad? But for me, I try to run a bookbub ad every single month. It's, and, and most of the time, my stuff gets accepted, and I'm, I'm really fortunate. And I don't want to dissuade anybody who is I, I hate seeing somebody say I've applied 35 times and offered my kidney and <laughs> I still am not getting accepted mm-hmm. and I feel so bad you know I, I do think they are working to try to get you know as many people in as they can and just change it up but um, I find that running a book of ad is fantastic especially if you're trying to hit a list I would say New York Times is sort of out of reach with the changes that they've made um, unless an author is really, really lucky, and it's a, it's a good month that's kind of a quieter month normally. Mm-hmm. But USA Today is totally achievable with a book club ad. And um, I, I like to stack the deck. So book club ad is – I'll pick the book that I'm going to advertise that month. Book club ad is the first goal is to have the ad – and then I stagger smaller ads for about the next three weeks 
about every three days. So, like, you know, because book club, they, what they give you is they give you all these sales, and your book shoots to the top, you know. You, it, maybe you get you get in the top 100 or, the, you know, even better, top 50. Mm-hmm. And, and then the goal to me after that is how long can I keep it there? And so I find a lot of people will run a book club ad, and then that's it. <laughs> so, and I think, and then in, in a few days when they're back into the 1,000, then 1,000 goes to 5,000 as far as ranking, and then that goes into, like, the nosebleed section of books. <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm always like, well, what's your strategy? Was it just around the book of ad? Because I know that, and people say, yeah, it was really expensive, but I think, yeah, but if you just put a couple hundred more dollars out, you can stretch that out. And, yeah, it's not going to be... Maybe you're not going to be number fifty in the store for three weeks, but it'll it'll kind of carry you out, and you can kind of ride that wave just a little bit longer because it's harder now. It a couple of years ago wasn't so hard. Now it is. It's harder to get noticed and to stay noticed. Now you're doing these follow-up ads, uh, as you you call them, smaller ads and less expensive ads, and you work in a specific genre. So y- you have these sites or lists or whatever that you might be advertising with. How do you? How would you recommend that people find things like that for their own genre, for follow-up ads to BookBub? Well, there are certain sites that are not genre-specific, um, like Free Kindle Books and Tips or BookSense. Um, and if, if on my blog, which is Cheryl Bradshaw Books, uh, blogspot.com, I have an alphabetized list of all of the secondary ads, and it's, I think I, we posted that maybe March of this year, February of this year, Okay. and it has, and it has things like um, how I'll rank them. Like, I, I rank, like, I put best next to the ones I think that are really well, and if, it, and if, and if they're only genre-specific, I will say, you know, like, this is only, like, vampire, ghost, supernatural type of things. This is just romance, erotica. This is everything. I break it down on there. And that, and there, and to me, I try, whenever I see something new that I think is effective, I will, we, we just keep adding to the list. Okay, great. And I will link to that in the show notes. So uh, if you're driving around somewhere listening to this or exercising or washing the dishes or however you listen to the author biz, uh, just check the show notes there, and I'll guide you to, uh, to the blog post. You run a Facebook group for indie authors. Let's talk about that for a couple minutes. So my Facebook group is called Indie Writers Unite, and I started it when I was writing or publishing my very first novel because I didn't know any indie authors. I had emailed back and forth with a with a couple authors who are traditionally published, but I didn't know anything about the indie business at all. And so I thought, you know, it would be helpful if I had so many questions. And so I put together Indie Writers Unite so that not only I could get my questions answered, but now, you know, like four years later, I can answer a lot of the questions, and we have all kinds in there from, like, I'm writing my first book to New York Times bestseller to traditionally published authors, and and it's just a place where they can go where we don't, we don't allow, like, frivolous promotion, you know, of, like, buy my book, buy my book. <laughs> it's really just for authors to just go and ask whatever they want, you know, anything they want, no matter how silly they think it is, which... 
I don't think we've all been there. So Mm -hmm. no one needs to be like worried to ask a question, even if it's been asked a hundred times. You know, we all take turns trying to just whoever's on at the time, just trying to help people out or answer a question or, and, and it can be anything, any question relative to the book business. And that was my goal in creating it is just to create it, learn, make some new friends in the business. And then now, my mindset is switched to kind of giving back and helping other indies who are just getting started out because I do believe it is a lot harder to make it than it was a few years ago. And things are constantly changing. So you're a, you're a part of this ecosystem now where people are kicking around different ideas and you're exposed to things that you might not have been exposed to otherwise. Yes, definitely. And this this is a closed group, right? So you have to apply to be accepted? It is closed. We we had it was open at first, but there were a few people on there that because it was open decided that they would just engage in things that we didn't really want to mm-hmm. argue about in the group. And so when it became when we were given the option by Facebook, which at first we weren't because it uh, it used to be that a group of a certain size couldn't be closed. But then they changed that. And when we closed it, what I found happened was, for me, the biggest part of that was that people who normally wouldn't ask a question and would sit in the background mm-hmm. were starting to ask questions because it was closed. It stayed within the group, and it was more. It became more of a personal atmosphere, and I think there was some safety in that for new writers that just wanted to become a part of it but didn't really want to say a whole lot if it was open for everybody. Cheryl? We, we've we've spoken about your books a little bit today. Let's talk for a minute about the Sloan series, and then and then dig in a little bit to uh, the new standalone "Eye for Revenge." Okay. Tell us about the Sloan series, and and tell us who Sloan is, and why it's such a fun series. I could tell people why I like the series, and I've been reading it from the very beginning. But uh, you maybe would... that would be best. <laughs> well, I'll do that. I I remember where I was. I was laying by the pool. In a rental house, we were between, we'd sold our house, and we hadn't yet closed on the new place, and I, we were renting a house. I was by the pool, and I was looking for books at Amazon, and I saw this book that had a skier on the front, and it was a mystery. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting, and I downloaded the sample, and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. So I read it, and then at that time, I think there might have been one more book, and so I read that. I got on your email list. I was notified when new books came out, and I've read them all, and I love them. And I have also read a few of your standalone books, and as as I mentioned, I just started on Eye for Revenge tonight. But the Sloan series, Sloan is a female private eye. She's, she's very entertaining. Um, some great cases, some great... She has a particularly cool female sidekick. I can't remember her name. Help me out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, Maddie, uh-huh. Maddie Wafo. So, uh, and the sidekick is uh, basically a, she's a medical examiner, which I kind of threw that in there so that I can add forensics into the book and have it be entirely plausible because mm-hmm. I'm I kind of have an addiction to shows like forensic files and stuff, and so I really like to take what I've learned and kind of throw that in there when it matches, you know, what I'm writing in a scene. I actually have a thing of notes where 
if I'm like, oh, I think I saw something like that on CSI or on Forensic <laughs> Files, if I hear something really cool, then I'll take notes on it so that if I need to refer back to it, you know, I can do that. But, um, yeah, Sloan, she's basically just a, she's a private investigator whose life isn't ever really completely together. She's probably more on the serious side. Um, she does have a playful side, but I'd say she's a little more on the serious side. She's very serious and loyal about all of the cases that she gets, and she's all about justice. Where So I threw Maddie in there, her little sidekick, because Maddie is the opposite of that. She's yes. just yeah. really playful. She's, you know, crazy. She'll try anything once. She kind of keeps Sloan from being too serious all the time, and I think that they balance each other out in that way. And it, it's it's a wonderful series. There are six books now. I know I saw from your website there are a couple novellas that have been a part of different uh, combined projects that you've worked on that you'll be releasing independently, and you're working on the next book. Uh, now let's talk for a minute about Eye for Revenge, the new romantic suspense release that came out last month. Right. So Eye for Revenge is... Um, it's still a murder mystery, but it has a little bit more of a romantic element to it. I got the idea for writing the book when I was thinking one day about lost love, like back when you're in college and, you, and the one that got away or in high school, you know, maybe a high school sweetheart that didn't end up together, but 20 years later you still wonder what that person's doing or maybe something happened that made it not work out, but you but you still care for the person even though so much time has gone by. I've I, I had so many friends who have talked to me about this in their own lives. You know, or somebody they ran into that they used to be in a relationship or whatever, that it kind of gave me an idea of having a girl, which is, in this case, is Quinn Montgomery. And she goes, um, she, she goes back to her hometown six years after she graduates because her best friend has been murdered. And that kind of opens up an old wound of the breakup she had with her own high school sweetheart. So there's, He's now a police officer in town, so then there's that whole element. And then on the flip side of that, there's the murder that she's determined to solve. And she's just an amateur sleuth. She's not, you know, she's kind of a, not somebody that would normally ever do that kind of thing, but she's more than determined to, like, figure out who is behind what happened to her best friend. As I said, I started reading it last night, and it's very enjoyable, like all of your books. So if if listeners out there like reading this kind of thing, definitely give it a try. Cheryl, what's the best way for people to keep up with you and what you're doing? Maybe get on your email list? Yeah, getting on my email list is great, and there is a link to the newsletter on my Facebook page and on my website at CherylBratchett.com and on my blog. So anywhere you can find me on the Internet, there will be a little link to sign up for the newsletter. And I keep everyone, you know, involved with what I'm writing now, what's coming next, you know, anything that's going on, that's all in the newsletter. All right. Cheryl, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Cheryl for all of that great information and to you for joining us on this week's show. Remember, show notes at theauthorbiz.com. Have a fantastic week in your author biz, everybody. We'll talk again soon.